Gregory Bible Study. This is a Bible study based on a patristic uh, uh, lens, that is an outlook uh, on the Bible set to us by uh, uh, our fathers uh, in the church, our fathers in the faith. This is being brought to you from Gregory of Nyssa Skeet in Florida. A skeet is a place where monastics or ascetics live. Gregory of Nyssa was called the father of the fathers by the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Many of his teachings were fundamental to the understanding of the expression of the faith that was given to us through the apostles. We're going to begin the Bible study at the beginning, which is in Genesis, because the story of Genesis is the foundation of what develops afterwards. It's how God creates, the families he chooses, the lessons he gives for us in order to live, and their fulfillment in Christ, and the coming of the final coming of the kingdom uh, at the end of time, with the restoration of all things. Now, we need to say a few things about uh, about the Bible. First of all, it's the church that creates the Bible. It's the church that decides what is Christian scripture, what is the Christian interpretation, what is the lens one uses uh, to review uh, uh, to review all the material and the writings uh, uh, that are present. Now, what we have to know and have to remember is that the Bible was not dictated by God. It was not dictated through an angel. This is a reflection that men have made upon an encounter with God. That's what the Bible is. It is looking at creation. It is looking at the history of man and discerning God's actions in that development. That's what the Bible is. It is a history, but not, a, not history as we understand it from a textbook. It is not science. It is an attempt to put into words mysteries that otherwise cannot be articulated. Now, there are things that we know about the Bible. And the Bible has been studied since the time the writings began, centuries before Christ. But the Bible that we have today was basically put together in the 5th century before Christ with the return of uh, the Jews uh, from captivity in Babylon. Now there is some older material in the Bible, but from the first verse of the first uh, chapter of Genesis to the last verse in Chronicles, we can tell by the language and the way it was written, it is written by one person. So one person edited a massive material that had been in existence to begin to tell a coherent story of God's interaction with man, what happens when man fails, and how God restores, and that there is in fact a promise for the future. 
there are some editions that come after the uh, fifth century before Christ. The book of Daniel, for example, which is a parable, is in the third century before Christ. And then, of course, at the time of the uh, uh, rebellion of the Maccabees uh, against the uh, Hellenization being imposed uh, uh, by the uh, uh, generals of Alexander the Great, we have the stories of the Maccabees. So the Bible that we have has developed over time. And what is a reflection again, and I, I emphasize, is man's encounter with God. And that's what the Bible is about. Now, we are basing uh, the language we use, or, or modern translations, but the foundational element of the Bible is the Greek translation that was made in Alexandria between the 2nd and 3rd centuries before Christ. Uh, for those of you who do not know, there was a major uh, a library in Alexandria. Ptolemy, who was one of Alexander's generals, was fond of learning. And in Alexandria, he built a library to collect the major writings of all peoples. And so tradition tells us that uh, he requested uh, a copy of the uh, uh, Hebrew scriptures. And some 70, some say 72, uh, scholars were sent uh, uh, to Alexandria and working independently and in collaboration produced the, the translation which we know as the Septuagint. And that's the Greek translation that is, in fact, the foundation of the Bible. It, was, it is what's quoted by the apostles. It was used all over the civilized world. Civilized world spoke Greek. And as a consequence, uh, we'll find Greek in use uh, everywhere. The um, Masoretic text, which is the text that the, uh, the Jews use today, is actually based on a 9th century codex, 9th century after Christ, uh, uh, that a codex uh, that is a collection of the writings that's found in Leningrad, and this is on this is based the uh, the the modern uh, Jewish uh, translations. We know with the discovery of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essene Library, the Essene Library was probably the library of the Second Temple in Jerusalem, that there are variations in the books in all the books of the Bible. I mean, we're speaking of the Old Testament here. And yet, none of these variations are really substantive. Uh, there's essential agreement on all points. So, this is the, the, the background that we get into. Now, the canonization, design, deciding what books constituted the Bible and what did not, developed over time. Uh, it's... Um, it's simply a question of deciding what is consistent with the history and the understanding that we have seen has developed uh, through uh, the history of, of Israel and how the incarnation of Christ affects that interpretation and that lens and how all of this is mediated and guided through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. It is not that the scripture is inerrant. 
because after all it is written by man, and man does not always understand or write clearly. But the message is there. The message that is carried through over the centuries is the same. And in that we see the hand of the Holy Spirit. So with these few things, we're going to talk just about Genesis. And we're only going to speak about the first uh, uh, three uh, sentences in Genesis today. And let me read them to you because, and again, this is an tra English translation. And I use the Oxford American English Bible because it's probably the best scholarly translation that exists. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now in those three verses is packed a tremendous amount of knowledge. And this is what we, we have to, to note. In the beginning, so we're talking about the beginning of creation. In the beginning, when God began to create, and this is important because that means God exists before creation. There is nothing before God. God creates out of nothing. God is. And that's the, that's the whole point. God is. God exists. God is unchangeable. He's perfect. And so all the attributes we ascribe to God uh, are, are there, unchangeable, simply one. And so God chose to create. So creation is an act of love. It's not obligatory. It's not a play. It's not a matrix in which we live. God created. And the whole story of creation is that God wanted to share his creation. This, this is the beauty of it. This is the grace. This is the love that we see. Now, in this creation, just a minimal digression, but we'll talk about it later in, in Genesis, man is given free will. Well, it's not just man. The angels as well. The angels were created first and then man. All have free will. The consequences of the creation are already anticipated at the time of creation, because in God there is no change. In God there is perfection. So the end of the end of history as we know it will be the restoration of the beginning. And what was the beginning? The beginning is the creation all is good, and man is placed in a garden and even in Eden, and that and man has to tend that garden, and in the end man does return and tends that garden. Uh, in, in concert uh, with God. This is the whole development uh, uh, of, of our thought as Christians, how we become one with God. Now, the angels fell, we're told, that at the moment of creation, they were given the opportunity to decide. They were faced with the whole ultimate truth, which is God. And yet Lucifer, faced with this, said no and set himself up as God. This is the, the interesting um, poem on Paradise, Paradise Lost by Milton. It's not scripture, 
but it certainly is a, an interesting psychological insight into what may have transpired. But the fall of the angels is equivalent to the death of man. Man is giving an opportunity to live a life with Christ. And if man refuses that, then man dies. It's really, it's really that simple. We say, well, you know, we, we know people who were obviously evil, and they live a long time. Well, the death is the death of the soul. You know, fear not the man, the one who can take your life. Fear the one uh, who uh, condemns the soul. But in any event, uh, is there a possibility for change? We mean, who can withstand God's love? The, the beauty about free will is that we are given God as an example, and God is his love, and God sustains creation, and he sustains us all. And his love is unchanging. If we accept his love, if we accept and reflect upon what happens to us and realize that much of what occurs is because of our inability or our unwillingness to participate with God, that we uh, uh, develop these uh, uh, ideas that something is bad or good or punishment. But it's not that. All of this is instruction. So that even in the hymns of the church, in times of funeral, in the times of death, we actually even hope that those who have rejected God and therefore being in the presence of God will find that hellish that they may in fact turn. Even one of the fathers of the church, John Cassian, writing in his conferences, and this is in the fourth century, or I'm saying uh, early fifth century, that were Lucifer to repent, he would be restored to his position as the highest archangel. So this is God's law. Uh, this, is, this is what is so incredible about it. And again, the end is in the beginning. The end is already determined. God wins. One cannot rebel against God. God wins. And paradise is in the beginning. Paradise is in the end. Once we accept that, once we realize that we are living in the kingdom of God today, with all that looks, uh, we get distracted by many things. But the fact is, the sun comes up in the morning, it rains, grass grows, the birds sing, we're able to, to live, move, breathe. That's all a miracle. And that's God and God sustaining us. And that's God's love. God creates, because after all, it says God created. There was um, his spirit moved over the, the, the face of the deep. It says hovered, uh, brooded, uh, in the sense that a, a hen, for example, uh, uh, sits over an egg to hatch it. It's, it's that concern, that motherly concern that God has uh, over his creation. And this is at the beginning. And then God says, let there be light. So who creates God? God who, whom we cannot comprehend. God is one. There can be no other God beside God. God is one. And yet, in his manifestation, in his operation, we understand that God is triune. Because after all, God said, let there be light. So on his word, the word that he utters, 
on the breath that he utters, which is his spirit, creation occurs. Now the Apostle John tells us in the first chapter of, uh, of the uh, Gospel of John, first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who creates? Well, the Trinity creates, but it is created through the Word in the Holy Spirit. And this is reflected in the creed that uh, was established at Nicaea and Constantinople in the fourth century. Uh, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. You know, this, this is crucial and it stems actually just from these first words uh, in Genesis. So we say, but the question gets asked, well, if God is one, why do we refer to him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, because when it, he is not manifest, when he is not known to us, then God, yes, is unity. That's what we see is his total unity. But in his operations, because that's how we understand God, we don't, we, we, we don't comprehend his essence or his nature. We can never comprehend God. But we see how God in his actions and realize that God then is in three hypostases, or that is three manners of concrete existence, if one can refer to concrete existence to God. But the Father is unbegotten. From the Father, the Word is begotten. The Word that is uttered, the Word that creates. And it is done on the breath of the Spirit, the Spirit that proceeds from the Father. So, this is all one God. They differ only in one is unbegotten, one is begotten, and one proceeds. But when we see an action of God in creation, it is the Trinity in operation. Because when it's not possible to separate the actions of God. We see them in some fashions where in our minds we separate them. Oh, Jesus did this and uh, but the Holy Spirit did that. No, they all it's all done together. For after all, at the time of the Incarnation, Mary says, It will be done to me according to your word. And the Holy Spirit overshadows her. That is as obvious an indication that the Trinity acts as one. Well, in any event, this may sound surprising to you, but this is also reflected actually in the holiest, in the oldest scriptures known to man, which are the Vedas, they're Hindu scriptures. And if you will see them, they talk about the fact that God is not manifest, we cannot appreciate his essence, but as he manifests, he manifests as three. It's not three gods, it's three, it's, it's, it's a different articulation, but he manifests as Trinity. And when he and his theophany, that is because he is seen in creation, he is seen at different times. That theophany is in sense a personal uh, action of God. In this uh, in, in our understanding, it is Jesus. Whom does Moses see at the burning bush? He sees Jesus. Uh, when Abraham 
uh, has uh, an encounter with God, it is he sees Jesus. Uh, he sees the Trinity, but Jesus is, is the one. So every encounter that we see, the angel of great counsel, the mighty angel, like, we're talking about a theophany. The difference with Jesus is that he's not a theophany, he's actual, actually God present taking flesh. But in any event, the fact is that this understanding is as ancient as man. That God exists, that he's one. In his creation, we realize that he is Trinity and that God does manifest himself to us uh, uh, in a personal fashion. This participation which is possible and certainly fully seen with Mary as she accepts God's word and is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, is full participation in God's kingdom. And that's what we are attempting for and that's what we ask. Remember God, I spoke of the spirit of Moses, he appeared to Ezekiel. Uh, it's, Ezekiel remembers he's the son of man or one like a son of man. Uh, this is that God does not leave his people. He sends prophets. There are only a number mentioned in the scriptures, but God sends prophets at all times. People who can see, that is, see clearly, see what God wants. And so all this is coming to us just from these few verses in Genesis. So when God creates... God, who has anticipated the fall, has anticipated the... I hate to use the word anticipate because this is always known to God. There is no time in God. Time is for creatures. But we have to think in human terms. And so anticipate means, oh, I'm aware of it before I'm going to do it, but all the contingencies are worked out and it works out in the end. That's essentially what we're saying. But the fact is, the crucifixion then is not an accident. And that's why it's prophesied in Scripture in the Old Testament. Because this is anticipated. It is showing us the way that we have to behave. God gives ten commandments. He gives us a way to, to, to structure, to live with each other, to live in communion. This is the point. We are the hands and hearts of each other. We are each other's salvation. We contribute to it. We don't abandon. We cannot look down on anyone. Everyone is created in God's image. And we grow in his likeness. And his likeness is as we follow his commands, his directions, his teachings, the examples he set for us, the example he set forth in the person of, the, of Jesus himself. So in any event... Understanding all this, we realize that creation is a gift, it is a gift of love, that we have always been forgiven, that it is a gift, a grace, it is not earned. But as the question was asked to St. Paul, well, if that's the case, you know, we don't have to do anything. And St. Paul says, no, God forbid, don't even think that. No, God gives us, he outlines a way for, for us to live. Remember, before the law, there was no instruction. Man was in paradise, man rebels, man now has to fend for himself. God does not abandon him. 
but man has to fend for himself. Fending for himself was a disaster. It ended in the flood. So God comes again. In the time of grace, he chooses, he, he again chooses a, a, a individual. We'll talk about the story of Abraham later. But uh, the gift is to Abraham's seed. He comes and gives the law to Moses. He frees us from slavery again because man falls into slavery. And that's the story of Egypt is, uh, is slavery. But man comes out of it because it is God himself who rescues them. And so, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the parable that is Exodus. And so we're given again a guide on how to live. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. And because we even failed that, God comes himself in the time of grace to show us what the commandments mean. And the commandments are summed up in we shall love the Lord our God with our whole heart, our whole mind, and our whole soul, and we shall love our neighbor as ourselves, and on that is written based the law and the prophets. It's simple. And for those who still don't get it, there's Matthew 25, which says, What you've done to the least of me in my name you have done to me. And of course, there are those who say, well, you know, we, we, we didn't see you, Lord. Well, we didn't recognize you there. Well, okay. <laughs> but it, it was he. What would you do in the least, to the least of me? We are stewards of creation. That means we must recognize each other as being in the image of God. That because of that, and because of that very thing, there's an idea of human rights. that we are responsible for all of creation because creation is interconnected. And we'll talk about that later as we go through the other first verses in Genesis. But in the end, I want you to remember this. We think human rights is, is a recent idea, but no, it's really based just in this understanding. Now, one of the difficulties the Israelites had was they thought that that was extended basically to Israel alone. In the Christian understanding, we realize that is it that the respect and love is owed to every human creature. And how does it take effect? Well, I'm going to give you the one example that we see in the modern governments and states. And this occurred in the 16th century, early 16th century. And when Spain had conquered the, uh, the Americas and was colonizing the Americas, and the question arose, what were some of these colonizers doing? How were they treating the indigenous people? And Charles V, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was Charles I, uh, uh, Emperor of Spain, actually convened a council of theologians, wise men, and the like, including Bartolomeo de las Casas, the bishop, a Franciscan bishop from the Americas, who criticized and wrote significantly uh, uh, as to what was occurring. And this was this commission that said at its fundament that all men are created in the image of God and are required and 
and are worthy of dignity, respect, and protection. And from that is where our modern understanding of human rights comes from. So this is, this is something that's very important to know, because in the end, love fulfills the law. And the love is a question of respect. It is a question of being the truth, living the truth, speaking the truth. But it doesn't have to be in a harsh manner. But it has to be true. Because if we're being true, then we are loving. And love fulfills the law. And as the Apostle Paul told us, we fulfill the law when we bear one another's burdens. So, I give you a quick introduction then to the first three chap the first three verses of Genesis. We'll we'll expand on them further, but to point out how much is packed in to just these three words that God created and how He created and why He created. Uh, I if you have any other questions or uh, we'd like to hear from you so that we'll be able to, to at least respond to them uh, in later discussions. But thank you uh, um, for listening today. Gregory, uh, this is Keith.